0: Welcome back to the Trade Geek Podcast. It is the 13th of February. Um, happy early Valentine's Day, nerds. I am very excited today to have an old friend and my old boss, actually, when I worked for the Expeditors Trade, One. Mr. Phil Coglin, on with us. Took me a lot of time to get Phil on uh, because of our schedules. So I'm, uh, I'm very thankful you made the time today, Phil.
1: Thanks, Pete. It's great to be with you. It's been a while.
0: Yes, it has. Good to see you again. Yeah, we'll see. That's hello. What's... hello. Yeah, I'm a little annoyed because I have my video on, and Phil doesn't. So I'm convinced that he's um, he's at his house right now, um, mixing drinks, and um, you know he hasn't shaved or gotten a haircut in two months or something.
1: I have my it's, Tom Brady pajamas on, and I'm going to wear them <laughs> until he resigns. So your Tom Brady footy pajamas? Yes, I'm not coming out of these until he signs. You do you think he's going to do it? It's a giant onesie. Uh, yeah, I, if they, I think they'll sign. Sa- he'll sign. If uh, we go out and sign a couple of top shelf receivers.
0: Yeah. Well, my my argument is he's worked so hard to make it an easy thing to walk into every year. Why would you want to restart that someplace? That's a good point. I mean, he doesn't run a regular, that has nothing to do with trade, but any, whatever. Right. So this is what happens. (laughs) This is what happens with you and I, we start talking about something. And before you know it, we're like doing zombie apocalypse television, or we're talking about baseball or, and that's fine. That's why we should have a radio show. When are we going to write our script? Um, I think <laughs> we've had some great ideas. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'll be happy to do a treatment and, you know, we can source it out after, but we've had some fabulous ideas. I don't know how many of them anybody would ever produce. <laughs> uh, but I look at some of the things on TV today and I think we've got a shot.
1: I'm, I'm with you on that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, um, Phil, uh, you've just retired, which I think is something that uh, – Many of us are very jealous of the idea of not having to get up in the morning and um, do whatever it is that we do for a living and and know that we're good to go financially. You're relatively young. You're what now, 75? Is that where you're at? Uh, Almost, 59. Yeah, yeah. So uh, he's got a lot of free time. I think he's only doing the podcast because you're bored. That might be what it is. I consider it an honor. (laughs) Wow. Well. We know better. Um, so so Phil's recently retired from, and how many years were you at Expediters?
1: 34 great years at Expediters. Ah, that's
0: amazing. And I, be, I believe that was the only forwarder you ever worked for.
1: No, I started uh, three years. My first three years were at Harper Robinson. Oh, okay. And Harper's Circle, and that's where the founders of Expediters came from, was the Harper Group. So I followed them in the second wave, so to speak, yeah. That's pretty
0: cool. So yeah. you're... You're like um, you're like a player who, who did his minor league time, and then when he made the bigs, he stayed with one club the whole time.
1: Uh, it's true, like like Yaz, I just... like Yes.
0: <laughs> Were you drinking Coors Light and smoking Marlboro Reds in the dugout, like Yaz?
1: No, I don't drink. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't drink light beer.
0: No, no you don't. No, you don't. Uh, so, um, talk talk to no no one ever comes into this business on purpose, and you've had. One of, the, one of the bigger jobs for one of the most successful logistics companies in the world. How, how is it that someone who seems so normal that could have done anything with their lives ended up working in this crazy business?
1: Uh, I actually thought I was going to work for a stockbroker. Really? Yeah, I was, uh, I was in a beer league in Chicago. And my good friend said, uh, who was playing shortstop, yelled at the first baseman, hey, Phil needs a job. He's going to law school. Uh, give him a job. And so the first baseman said, you want a job as a messenger for a broker? And I said, yep. I thought I was going to work in the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. The next thing I know, I drove out to O'Hare Airport. Someone tossed me a set of keys. I jumped in a citation, and I was picking up documents from Customs wow and that's how i got in the customs brokerage business but to the day i started i thought i was gonna work for a stockbroker.
0: did you show up in a tie with like a gray pinstripe suit
1: no no i had the standard uniform the loafers uh khakis white shirt blue tie
0: that's very nice
1: big boy haircut yeah (laughs) Yeah. had it been
0: like long and shaggy before then
1: absolutely yeah oh
0: i would love to see pictures of that see if i had better production value we could do that we could put up pictures of all this stuff but Mm -hmm. I, I have a very low budget for this. Um, although I do thank the good people at the World Trade Center of Capital Logistics, I shouldn't bite my my uh shouldn't bite the hand that feeds me. Uh, so you you become uh, you're a runner at that point.
1: Yeah, as a messenger. Yeah, yeah.
0: Okay, and for for people who for the vast majority of people in logistics, I don't know if many of them even know what a what a messenger or a runner is anymore.
1: Yeah, so I, I basically drove around to airlines port terminals, ground handling agents, customs offices and ran documents around uh, commercial documents, bills of lading, letters of credit um, <laughs> 3461, 7501s, I'll go old school on you. And and, and so it, did the citation have a keva have stereo in it? It did. Oh. It did. It had uh it, it didn't have a cassette player or an 8 track player, it just had a an FM radio. Yeah. Yep. And it was, uh, I just drove around all day. But the, the, what really benefited me was I got to know all the customs inspectors. So uh, my second job at Harper was I met the flying Tiger planes at night at O'Hare. And I would clear the payload for flying Tigers. And then I went to law school at, at night as well. So, um, but I knew all the customs inspectors. And so that got me in good graces. And then from there, I became an entry writer and eventually jumped over to Expeditors. But uh, that's how I started.
0: You did go to law school. uh, I did. Yes. You did graduate from law school. I did. Did Was it just John Marshall's where you went?
1: Yeah. Very good. Yep.
0: And then your undergrad was at Illinois. Is that correct?
1: Yep. Fighting Illini.
0: Fighting Illini. Yes. Got it. It's almost as silly as the Crimson. So the, (laughs) the, um, the, the academic progression for someone, this is the part that I try to explain to people, okay, you went to a fabulous state school, you then went to a very good law school, and you ended up working, moving other people's crap around the world in boats and planes for the next 34 years.
1: That's right. Yeah, I, when I went to work for, I needed money, you know, I didn't want to borrow a bunch of money for law school. So I needed a job, I needed a paycheck. I wanted my own apartment. I just, I wanted to be my own, do my own thing. So I need. I wanted a paycheck. So but I, when I went to work for Expediters, uh, I met a couple of the founders there, and they I just wanted to be like them. I wanted to emulate them. They were mentors, role models, and um, they weren't that much older than me, they were maybe 10 years older than me at the time. And I'm like, geez, I, I want to do this. And um, I kind of fell in love with it. Back then, we were sort of a happy band of pirates <laughs> out uh, you know hunting for business and closing business and working crazy hours. <laughs> And, uh, it was fun and global trade was taking off and I was, whatever, I forget how old I was. I got to go to Hong Kong on a fam tour. I thought, my God, what am I doing in Hong Kong? It was, it was exciting. So, and then, uh, someone said, Hey, you want to open up the office in Boston for us? And I was like, sure. You know, how old were you? Uh, 25, 26. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I moved to Boston, and um, that was 30-something years ago. I moved to Boston for two years. I was going to open the Boston office, um, get some business experience. I'd have a law degree and some business experience, and I was going to go save the, save the uh, downtrodden from the man. Uh, but I started having some traction and some success, and uh, 34 years flew by.
0: Yeah, I can't imagine you in, like, an a off-the-rack suit with a bolo tie. <laughs> walking or walking around with the public defenders, let's stick it to the man, man.
1: <laughs> well, it was idealistic, you know. You have to. Have oh an yeah. Idea. Oh. Yeah. Then reality settles in. Then a family settles in. Then bills settle in, and then you turn into uh, you know, just hard charging, go for it, and see what happens.
0: Now, I'll say this though: I think the older I get, I think I'm becoming idealistic again. It's just the things that I'm passionate about. There's fewer of them, but I'm much more much more passionate about them politically than I think I was before. I don't have time for a lot of
1: the other stuff. It's great to hear that because I think uh, we need more idealism. We need more things to oh, yeah. aspire to be and uh, less recreational outreach.
0: Oh well, I I can't stand it. Absolutely can't stand it. And you know I don't talk about politics on the podcast so I'm not going to now but one thing that I, I will say about this business in particular is it's so it's so global trade is so intrinsically engaged in global politics and it's it's hard like with brexit right now it's hard to talk about brexit and not have a client or a colleague or someone interject something politically about the players
1: yeah of course yeah.
0: same thing with the chinese tariffs and all the rest of it and i've taken this attitude recently and it took me a little, i mean you remember me in my 30s what a, putts I was but I, I I've taken this new attitude that I'm not a senator or a congressman I'm not the USTR or the president I can't change any of this so maybe what yeah. I'll do instead is think about how to work inside the rules of it
1: I used to tell the, the folks that, that worked for me and the people I worked with that our job was to surf and not yeah. get wet and uh, you know the, you can argue you can argue and debate it all you want outside of work but when we're at work our job is to surf and stay above the fray so absolutely get and get things done. Stop yeah. uh, stop wishing what, what things would happen that aren't gonna happen. Yeah. So you,
0: you you joined you joined Pete Rose's uh, band of misfit toys. Yeah, and, it, was, uh, it
1: was awesome. It was uh, it was a <laughs> looking back on I mean at the time it was stressful, but looking back on it, we were we were we were hard charging, we we did everything for each other. We were it was quite a unique little window of time there. Yeah, it was great.
0: Then how long before you moved from a branch job to a regional job?
1: Uh, maybe five years into my role as district manager Boston, I became a regional manager of the Northeast in Canada, and then from there, North America, and then I became president of the company, and I, then I got involved in trade with you for maybe 10 years or so, and then uh, my last role there was charge of strategy and innovation there, so
0: we will get to that strategy gig. Cause that's like the cool, you've buried the lead with that. That's pretty awesome. Uh, but it, I, I, I have more Phil stories and whenever, whenever I'm dealing in a business situation, I ask myself all the time, what would Phil do right now? Because your, your personality is not very much like mine and that you're, you taught me to keep my mouth shut let people talk them into either a decision or, or a bad decision. Yeah, usually, most people
1: hate silence. They oh, they, yeah. feel, they feel like nature abhors a vacuum. Human beings hate silence and fill it up with words. So if mm-hmm. you let them go, they'll go.
0: And they might tell you something they didn't want to, or they might make up a great, they may come up with something bright, but just let them think on their own. Um, but I always talk about how when my good friend Garth and I walked into your office and you said, you guys are supposed to both be like super smart, but you don't make any money and you don't know why. Does that sound like something too smart, guys? would be operating a business on. And we just sat there just so disgusted with ourselves, but you know, what happened after that was, I guess maybe five years of, um, of you just gently kicking us into line and teaching us a lot of the things that I had never been taught. I, I had been taught how to advise clients, keep a room of people engaged and convince people to sign contracts, but no one had ever taught me how to run a P and L and what it all meant. And you know, the delicate balance of internal politics and finance and all the rest of it. It was, uh, it was like a postgraduate education on all of that. So,
1: yeah, it was just, it was the, the monetization of your expertise. That's all.
0: And I don't think any of us really thought of it that way. Right. We were, we were so cerebral. We just wanted an opportunity to show people how smart we were. What we forgot was the real opportunity was trying to make money on that. So, um, and you'd be sh- you wouldn't be shocked, but I think a lot of people will be shocked when you're in a consulting role, how that is ubiquitous in our business. Just yeah. smart people who don't realize that they could be making good money if they acted like business people. So yeah, that was crazy. Uh, what point did you get married? How old were
1: you? Oh, my third year of law school. So 20- okay. 24, I married uh, uh, my high school girlfriend.
0: That's awesome. I never knew that.
1: Yeah. Met in high school and then uh, dated in college. And then as law school decided that, I mean, I, at, at the end of the day, I, I out kicked my punt coverage, but, and I realized I needed to marry up. So that's what I did. And yeah.
0: She is a very lovely lady. Um, the, the idea that you've been, um, you know, engaged in those two pursuits that take up so much time and commitment for so long, uh, is rare. I can't tell you how many jobs I've had. Um, but it 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 doesn't seem to be normal anymore to stay with one company for a very long time, put the work in and rise to the top and I'm not sure what the reason is for that anymore
1: i had i just i I was incredibly lucky um I'm a bit of an Irish pack mule in the sense that i can I can work hard and and I can work really hard. but I had great bosses and and those bosses would cheer me on and then also simultaneously pull me aside and tell me to smarten up. Mm -hmm. And, um, I just got really lucky to have great bosses. And, and I figured I want to be around successful people. Hopefully some of it will rub off. And, um, and to the extent that it did, I got really lucky. Yeah.
0: So, um, as of last week, we have about 10,000 subscribers to this podcast and the overwhelming majority of them. So I would say almost almost 70% of them are probably under the age of 30. A lot of them are only a few years out of college. And um, again, they work in transportation logistics and they're just trying to get insight and information about this business. If, if young Pete Mento walked in to, you know, have a cup of coffee with you and talk about going to work in this business, what kinds of pieces of advice do you think you'd give somebody young who wanted to pursue this
1: I'd start with the advice that applies to any industry let alone our industry but uh, first is be on time hmm. be a little early come to come to the meeting with some energy uh, something to contribute prepared um, be a good listener work your ass work hard um, and then with regard to our industry you got to be a reader you have to want to read and understand policy understand uh, positions from multiple angles and um, avoid a fixed mindset and be able to to see challenges from multiple angles. But I think to be in our industry and, and to be, um, successful, you got to be a really good reader. You got to really apply yourself to, which is not you know, some of the, sometimes not the most exciting material, but you got to apply yourself <laughs> because that, that's, that's where all the knowledge is, is in, is in these policies and trade regs and industry, uh, patterns and trends. You, you, you got to apply yourself.
0: I so, love all that stuff though, Phil. I'm weird. Uh, I, I, that's I why love you're that good crap. at what you do. Uh, some days.
1: Yeah. But,
0: you know, it's a great transition um, from that. You you had what I tell a lot of people is one of the more interesting jobs in our industry from the description of it and from the way you described it to me for your final position with expeditors before you decided to retire re- very recently, weeks ago, right? So tell me how if you can, um, how did the decision to build a role like this come out? What were you focusing on? And, um, you know, then I guess we'll get a little bit of the industry and strategy.
1: Yeah. So, well, at the time I was, uh, uh, before my last, my previous job, I was president of worldwide operations and, and, um, and we had a very clearly defined core strategy that we built as a company. And under Jeff's leadership, Jeff Musser, our CEO, we were doing a great job of staying focused and disciplined and, and so Jeff and I started an email exchange about all the sort of the large big initiatives we we're doing inside our core. Uh, but, and and those things were paramount, but that's the only thing we did or researched. We might find ourselves a bit exposed if we didn't start to have some forward looking and different type of strategic uh, horizon thinking. So we started as an email exchange and then it became a uh, white paper. And then uh, Jeff said, Hey, how would you feel about taking this job? And I'm, I was like, I don't know. I'm, I'm an ops guy. I don't, I can't do that job. And (laughs) I began to think about it a little bit. And I thought for all the reasons why I don't want the job, I should take the job. So I did take the job and I began to build out uh, with, with some support from some professionals, build out a, a innovation strategy around not our core businesses, but adjacent and breakthrough ideas. So I built a small team of, I think it's a dozen people. Uh, and they spend all their time sort of forward-looking, doing horizon scanning, trying to build out new businesses and launch new companies that would be complementary to our core strategy. And um, it was really fun to build out and 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 to learn. It was an educational experience for me as well. Yeah, it was really fun.
0: So you talk about that about how how I, I have a I I feel that for a lot of companies they're they're being just just blown past by companies that are investing in technology, thinking differently about the way that they manage their processes with or without technology, making different investments in not just their people, but the kinds of people that they hire. And then really being driven by a strategy other than let's just go sell some more next year, and see how it works out. So um, but one of my particular questions I wanted to talk to you about was technology because uh, I am not, I mean, I'm not a luddite. Don't get me wrong, but I'm not, I'm, I'm very uncomfortable talking about things like programming and the such, but I'm excited by technology. So you know where the question is going. There, there's there's all this talk everywhere about these digital forwarders and how they're this new breed of transportation providers. And I've been very vocal about my disagreement with the whole concept. So I'd just love to get your insight about how technology affects the business and um, what you think about all of it.
1: Oh, technology overall is wonderful. uh, Technology, though, is an enabler. And if you apply that technology to some really great ideas, the technology can enable those ideas. And and, and I think it's paramount to our industry that we continue to find ways to apply uh, emerging technology to make our business more efficient, more accurate, more timely, uh, and more interesting to the next generation of workers. Uh, So that's my overall comment that, you know, technology to me is super important, but it is just an enabler. Um, It needs to enable great ideas. Uh, As far as digital forwarding goes, you know, um, I I, I do think digital forwarders have added, um, have shined a light on the area of, of, that the incumbent forwarders maybe were not totally focused on. And that is the user interface or the customer experience part of this, which is really about what's using rough numbers is about 20% of what you need but it's an important 20%. So I think they've added some value by by drawing attention to that. But if you're going to be in global trade around the world you need to you need to be able to execute. You need to be able to get things done around the world at 200 offices, you know, 10,000, 20,000 employees whatever the number is, you need some really strong execution software. And this idea that expeditors or the other large incumbents Are you know walking around with chisels and stone doing our work is laughable. Uh, It's a little insulting, Um, but I think we're seeing now that digital forwarders, when they have to physically move the cargo, and they have to do so in a compliant, timely, accurate manner, I begin they really they begin to realize that building out a global operating system that handles the finance, the compliance, the physical movement, and the inventory of the cargo is a little bit more daunting than building a a UI interface for a customer. Mm-hmm. So on the one hand, I think digital forwarders are a are, are, are new type of competition and the more competition, the better. But this um, love affair or this overhype of their capabilities, I find at times to be, I guess really disappointing in our um, our industry's uh, pundits and expertise never really call them out on their actual capabilities to execute. Yeah. That's the part that frustrates me.
0: I would get annoyed because they acted like large companies like these were not already making massive investments in technology. Like it was something they just thought up.
1: Yeah, it's, it, it, it's, a, it, it's frustrating, but the, sometimes he, he thinks he does protest too much, you know. But it is. It, we run a, a huge IT organization that works in, on all types of new technology, whether it's OCR or machine learning or RPA, all these things that everyone talks about, we're doing in a very deep way. Or I say we were, Expertise is doing in a very deep way. So, but again, I I think this new competition is good. It, it it kind of pushes you around a little bit, keeps you on the balls of your feet, keeps you athletic. But the notion that um, you know we're we're out there with sticks and stones up against you know new technology is sort of uh, it's a little laughable at times. Yeah, you, put it politely.
0: Yeah. We, we would, um we would talk a lot at expediters about making sure you could bring value to the client. Right. So of course, and the client, the client is going to try to find ways to trust you and you need to be there for them when they do. And um, you know, just being someone that moves a box from point A to point B is not a sustainable business model. And uh, my, my worry is that more and more of the Consumer of logistic services is trying to strip value out of the relationship through technology um, or, or or trying to get something for nothing or maybe not not paying attention to what could be a strategically a smart decision going forward with with technology and value and with the adoption of these massive TMS programs, like I think when they become more prevalent and work better, I wonder if it's going to continue to try to find more ways to strip even more value and you know, drive that, that profit margin even lower.
1: It's, 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 the the way I kind of look at this, uh, looked at this recently is, you know, you and I are both probably users of Amazon as well as many, if not all of your, of your listeners. And I bet we all use Amazon in essentially the same way. We may buy different things. We may deliver them to different places, but we eventually interact with Amazon in a very similar way. Yeah. That does not apply in the in the global <laughs> shipping world. The, 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 need, the needs and interface with Merck Pharmaceutical is completely different than the needs with the Gap or Boeing. So there's no super user group to deal with here. You have a myriad of needs and a myriad of supply chains you have to deal with. So what what I find happening is customers in and of themselves are trying to have a deeper understanding of the margin you're making and then whittle away at it, as well as shift a lot of the inherent risk or ambient risk in their supply chain onto their, their supply chain service providers. Yeah. And those two things are really causing um, an undue amount of stress on that industry, yeah. which, I think, which I think is going to cause problems for companies over the next five years.
0: So, looking ahead and looking back, is there is there some are there a number of instances or, or moments that happened in the past that you thought were crucial to the development of where we are as a business now and then, if you could give me one thing that you think is going to change everything going forward, what do you think that one thing is
1: yeah um, I would say the thing that the, for me the biggest things that in my when I was through this industry would be. Uh, automation, whether that came through the PC or other interfaces, the automation really had a dramatic impact. I, I go back to William von Rob saying, or die." Automator, Automator perish. Automator perish. Excuse me. Yeah, <laughs> that'd be one. And, you, and, and <laughs> with, with that instruction, we all automated. We sure did that, that guidance. And then uh, I would say the internet. I mean, the internet opened up a tremendous window for. Um, everybody involved in the supply chain service provider and customers to get a deeper understanding of what's going on and the ability to do greater uh, ability to, to uh, predictive uh, shipping and uh, track and trace. Um, I think that, I think the next thing coming that I, that I'm, I'm, I'm really intrigued about is how the, the uh, Uberization, if you will, of trade finance, And we begin to make trade finance super easy. I mean, really easy for small and medium shippers to begin to ship around the world. Um, I think think that's coming. I think the idea that banks are going to move out of this area and you're going to find cloud-based, digitally native trade finance corporations being able to empower a lot more companies to grow. And I think in the same way that uh, cloud-based computing and venture capital money has sprung up an enormous amount of growth in the startup world mm-hmm. Those same tools are going to be available for small and large, small and medium importers and exporters to begin to act like bigger companies because they can the, these the ability to get at trade finance super favorable terms, easy interface, smaller amount of paperwork and I think that's going to have a dramatic impact on um, global trade.
0: Well, banks have certainly done a bad job of logistics. So I wonder if logistics firms can do a very good
1: job of banking. Uh, Banks are burdened with, I don't know if burden is the right word, they carry around a lot of regulatory rules. Mm -hmm. And when you begin to move into the medium and small shipper that has products that's sought around the world, it's just too cumbersome to service that industry. Yeah. And I, I believe when trade finance becomes as easy as an ATM machine, if for lack of a better term yeah you're gonna see a whole rapid growth of new economy happen on the globe
0: yeah i i agree with you i think that'd be a fun podcast actually in the future to talk about that because it's the it's the final frontier and there's not a lot of on the client side at least i don't feel like they put a lot of thought into how a third party could help them with that but we're coming to the end of my time with you so every podcast everyone gets three questions all right Question number one, the first car that you ever yourself owned, uh, what was it and what happened to it?
1: 1969 Galaxy 500. Oh, what a car. Uh-huh. I, bought, I bought it from my Uncle Dan. Uh-huh. Um, it was beat up beyond belief. I painted it with gray house paint. <laughs> Lesson learned. Uh, and I drove that thing until it just it just gave up the ghost. It's like a, it's like a Blues Brothers story. Uh, was it a hardtop?
0: top yeah hardtop top oh, yeah. galaxy yeah,
1: yeah it was a beast
0: oh how man. many years did you have it
1: oh probably three it was how, it, when i when i got it it was already rode hard and put away it was beat up
0: yeah and yeah. you're keep keeping it together with hope
1: 500 bucks man they got that me was, where i needed to go
0: wow what'd you get after that
1: uh my next car after that um I think my brother's old Datsun
0: b210 those were great too
1: and you could draw as long as you change it all you could drive that thing into the ground
0: yeah I remember when I got rid of my BMW and I was I was buying a Saab and you you said you're you're gonna what (laughs) now I said I'm gonna buy Saab he said don't don't, you're gonna hate it don't do it don't do it and I bought it and and I suffered through that car just because I didn't want you to be right
1: yeah I learned that the (laughs) hard way myself yeah
0: Hated that car. We asked question number one. Question number two, the first job you ever had that paid you, so not not under the table, but someone actually paid you and it was a paycheck, what were you doing and what did you get paid?
1: I worked in a a warehouse sort of light assembly place where they made um, pencils and their account was the Chicago Public School System. And my job was to pull mutant pencils off the line.
0: Quality control inspector.
1: Yes, five bucks an hour. And if you talk about monotonous, eight hours a day, just Ooh. looking for where the lead wasn't centered in the wood and you had to pull yeah. it off.
0: And. Yeah, that's going to make you finish your college degree, <laughs> doing that for eight hours a day. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, number three, if if the laws of physics and reality um, were not a problem and Uncle Pete here had his magic wand, you could have any job, period, what would you want to do?
1: All right. I'm gonna go with I, I. I wouldn't mind being Eric Clapton. Oh
0: wow, Eric Clapton when?
1: A uh, sober Eric Clapton. Okay. I think it would okay. be neat to be that, to have that command on stage, and, and to be able to play, be a virtuoso like that.
0: I just saw him play in Dallas a few months ago at the uh, at the Crossroads Festival, and I'm oh, like, yeah. I'm sending Musser videos of everything, and he's like, Yeah, man, keep him coming. And, um, and then Jeff Beck went on stage. Oh. Bill Murray introduced Jeff Beck and I have wanted to see Jeff Beck my whole life. I thought I, thought I was going to cry like a girl at a Beatles concert in the 1960s. I was so excited. Uh, all right. Well, this recording is going to pop us off here in a minute, but um, those are all great answers. Phil, you've, you've been an inspiration to a lot of people in this business, man, and you suck at taking compliments, but there are, there are tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people that have been touched by the work you've done. And a lot of us owe where we are and who we are because of your tutelage and uh, your leadership and most importantly, your patience with us. So on behalf of all of them, thank you. And for me, uh, I can't thank you enough for everything you've ever done for me and for finding time between buying televisions and going to get roast beef sandwiches, making time for me today.
1: Hey Pete, we do the things that we do because we do them for each other, other do them for each other.
0: That was on a picture on your credenza in your office. You would remind me constantly. So looking forward to seeing you soon. And uh, I can't thank you enough, Phil. All right. Go
1: Bruins. Go Celtics.
0: Go Celtics. All right. Take it easy. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.